Good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our forum, The Power of Black Women Voters. My name is Krista Jones. I am founder and CEO of an organization called Vote We Impact. And we are so excited to sponsor this program today. I want to first start off by thanking a few of our co-hosts and co-sponsors for tonight. Um, Arlington Libraries, of course. The League of Women Voters in Arlington. Okay. <laughs> Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated News I Zeta Chapter. Virginia's List. The Women's Vote Centennial Initiative. And Network Nova and Women's Summit. So I wanted to start off by telling you a little about why we decided to do this event tonight. In it was 2017, after the Doug Jones Senate race, and it had become very clear to the world, even though people for decades had known the power of the black women's vote, I think a lot of us got um, energized after that race. So there were a lot of hashtags, follow black women, black women. I think finally politicians started to realize from a data perspective that it was really, really important starting to start to include black women, not only as voters, but I feel like there's been this surge in the last 12 months in terms of black female candidates. So last year, about a year ago, I decided to put together some focus groups which brought together black women and white women to talk about some of the challenges that we've had historically. You know, I know for me, there's always just been some tension. And I had a conversation with my dad, 66-year-old former Navy captain, who was just, you know, really not like I didn't know this, but he was just saying that that comes from slavery. There was there was a relationship there which we still carry with us today, even though a lot of us don't even know what anything about what slavery was like. So in these conversations, one thing I wanted to do was get to a point where black and white women could come together in terms of advocacy. So that's where this forum was born, and we invited Lori Brown Marshall to, to have a conversation and talk about what the power of black women voters is, but I always like to leave with action items. So I want to make sure everyone leaves with some tip of information or some inspiration to do something about this issue moving forward. So next I'd like to introduce our guest, Lori Brown Marshall. Lori Brown Marshall is a professor of constitutional law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She is the author of many books and articles, including Race, Law, and American Society, 1607 to Present. Her forthcoming book is titled, She Took Justice, about black women and the law, from warrior queen Zenga to today's activists. She is working on a documentary film to accompany the book. She is the executive editor of the report on the status of black women and girls. Professor Brown Marshall is a syndicated columnist and legal commentator who covers the U.S. Supreme Court in major cases. She has been the recipient of several awards and honors, including the Ida B. Wells Barnett Justice Award for her work with civil rights and women's justice issues. Professor Brown Marshall has completed the New York Marathon and is working on her next novel. Please welcome Professor Gloria Brown I have to just uh, say that she is not only intelligent and hardworking, but tenacious. <laughs> she's really great in a black woman. <laughs> <laughs> Any woman, but black women are very tenacious. 
And so she sought me out. I mean, this orderly, everything in this place. And I just want to thank you so much for inviting me. So first of all, let's just talk about your work and just kind of your body of work and how you got into this field of studying women, race, history, and politics. I'm really not sure, and I think my parents are really wondering what happened. <laughs> um, and, and I think it, it, it probably, if I really analyzed it deeply psychologically, it probably had a lot to do with being bust. Because um, busting, I, I grew up in the Midwest. I have lived there many, many decades, but um, I grew up there, and busing came late to my area in the Midwest. And so, and initially I was one of, say, five black students at my school, and I was at the top of my class at my old school, and I was too bad to be at the top of my class, and I ended up eventually, of course, getting there, but it was assumed that I was not as intelligent. It was just things that were said, and I, and I saw this disparity and it didn't defeat me because I knew I was smart. I knew I was smart when I was a little kid. And, and you know, cautious as you can tell. But what really troubled me, I think, was it bothered me to see people getting picked on. It bothered me to see um, people being seen as lesser than based on gender, based on color, based on where they lived, based on so many things that they couldn't change, that were being used against them, and used against me. I used to see it and think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world, to think one is lesser than based on you know, physiological differences. And I think that, in the back of my kid's mind, was something classism I didn't appreciate at all, because you're a kid, you, don't, you, you have no, no role in how much money your family is going to have. And the resources of the family. There were so many of these things, and I said, you know, in my background as a civil rights attorney, which is what I began as a civil rights attorney, I was like, I want to fight these things. I want to challenge them. I want to make a difference. I want to make um, people think differently. How can I use the forum for uh, available uh, playwriting, writing, essays, books, speaking out loud, and just, you know, Raising the issues, I think. So it all one led to all the others, and, and now here I am. So as we move closer to 2020, there's been a lot of discussion about Black women's role in the suffrage movement as well, because of course we're celebrating the centennial of the 19th Amendment next year. Can you talk about Black women did what Black women did to gain the vote and the way it played out between Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass? So that's a famous riff we often hear about. Well, I think it's pretty interesting in Seneca Falls, New York, in 1848, when the first convention of women was held, and part of that was the declaration of these women's rights, and one right in the list of rights would be equality and the right to vote, because they knew how important the right to vote would be. Um, the only African-American in the room was Frederick Douglass. Now, Frederick Douglass was married to a black woman at the time, so I don't know why she wasn't there. And I don't know why, to turn the truth, that other black women who were in upstate New York were not there. So when we talk about, you know, uh, to turn the truth, for example, amazing. People know her for the speech, and I a woman. But to turn the truth was just bad with four A's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, she had this saying of, of just going forward. She named herself Sojourner Truth. And she named herself Sojourner Truth because she said she's going to sojourn. So that's why she's sojourn. To speak, you know, truth to power. So truth. And she did this herself. Even when she um, decided that women should be equal. Because her speech is all, I work as hard as a man. You know, and one thing African American men and women have this parity that we experience the same things. The experience of slavery was not one in which, you know, black women were treated nicely and black men were treated, we were all treated the same way. And so she said, I've been through all these things as a black woman, so why am I not being treated equal, not just equal to a black man, but equal to a white man? So I can think of one story. She was a slave in upstate New York. And so she wanted to be free, as Miss Ray wanted to be free. Here's what Sojourner Truth said. I'm going to work for you very hard for a number of years, and then that's going to be my freedom. That was the agreement that she made, that the slaveholder made with her. The years came and went. She thought, okay, she's free now. Oh, no, you need to work a couple more years. She worked a couple more years. Okay, now I'm going to be free. No, no, because she worked so hard and did it so well. She was like, okay, you know what? I'm leaving. So when people said she escaped slavery, she always corrects them. Said, no, I didn't escape. I left. That's what she said. She said, I left. And she didn't go that far. She didn't run and hide and go to another state. She went about five miles away. <laughs> said, this is where I'm going to live now. And when he came to get her, she said, I'm not going. You broke your promise. I'm not coming back. So she also... Um, <laughs> <laughs> she also brought about four different lawsuits. And he's, yeah, she brought lawsuits. She brought a suit for defamation when she was a preacher. And someone called her name and said that, you know, that she stole money. So she, she brought a lawsuit and won. So Sojourner Truth, is, and I would say, was that suffragette representing that early 1800s period? And then we get to the later period after black men gained the right to vote with the 15th Amendment. And so I have my little constitution back there. You can read the constitution, 15th Amendment, black men gave the right to vote, which caused a rift between white suffragettes and black men because the white suffragettes wanted their right to vote before black men. And unfortunately, Alice Paul and many others, their fear was how dare you give a black person more right than you would have a white woman. So there were tensions between the races in the 1800s, but the black women developed their own suffragette movement because the white women wouldn't let the black women <laughs> So do you believe that this early contention played a role in the relationship between black and white women and the feminist movement? Oh, definitely. But it was also because no women had rights. So white women did not have when it came to their men. And we know that we ended up all these different colors because these white slaveholders were raping black women. That is American history. It's not history that you created or I created, but we inherited this American history. And this white mistress, the slaveholder's wife, had no power over him. She knew where he was going in the middle of the night. And when these enslaved women gave birth to children who looked very 
never still lived to her own. She knew and could do nothing. She had no power except to take her anger out on who? And so the rifts between the treatment of the slave master's wife or the enslaved woman working in the household and bearing these children for raising and the abuses begins there. And then with the suffragette movement, because there have always been free Africans in America. And this is the 400th anniversary of the arrival of Africans in this Virginia colony in 1619, August 1619. 20 Africans arrived in Angola into Virginia colony in what is Jamestown and Williamsburg today, Hampton Rose. And there were African women among those 20. And so this whole issue of the relationship between the African woman, the Native American women, and the European woman in the colony and then in the States has been one of tension because she had no power over him, but she had power over her. And so we're talking about centuries old tensions that have been unresolved because we've not had conversations like this. So after the 19th Amendment, how do we see black women still work for equal rights, even though we were, for the most part, not included? Well, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say two things. <clears throat> One is, going back to Frederick Douglass and um, Susan B. Anthony and um, Lucretia Mott and so many of the, Alice Paul, many of the very well-known suffragettes. The white suffragettes had their movement. The black suffragettes had theirs. Many times it was separate. The National Association of Colored Women would be on this side, and the National Association of Women would be on the other side. For example, those of you who might be members of the Association of University of Women. So then there was a National Association of University of Women that was started by Mary Church Terrell. That was the black version. So segregation was always there. There's always a black version. I, um, I know there's other um, um, sorors in the room. I'm an AKA soror. And so, <laughs> so what we, so you have the black sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, that started in 1908 because women from African descent could not join the white sorority. So you always had, after 1896, the Plessy versus Ferguson, this separation. But you also had black men who did not believe that women deserved the right to vote. One of whom is Booker T. Washington. Booker T. This is in my book. This is in, um, this, this, in um, this book, The Lewis Woman that came out. Um, and it's a letter that Booker T. Washington wrote that was published in the New York Times. He was asked about women's suffrage before the 19th Amendment was passed. And he said that, you know, why did they need it, basically? You know, they, they're so great in what they do, and I'm sure they can get their, their point across without actually having the right to vote. And the reason why, because the suffragettes were very powerful. I mean, think about it. Without having the right to vote, they were able to enact prohibition, have labor reforms, child labor laws, all of these reforms were because, as they said, there was a pillow talk going on. And these were middle class, upper middle class white women who were influencing, lobbying their husbands and what to do, enough to have an amendment to the US Constitution. Before
before they had a right to vote. So here's then how we stir the pot. We had black men like Booker T. Washington at the time, he was called the wizard. He was the voice for white people of the African-American community. He was the voice. So when they asked him this question, it was very important, you know, that he respond if he was going to support it. And then on the other hand, you had Frederick Douglass, who was basically a supporter of, of women's rights to vote all of his life. He died of a massive heart attack, and, and, um, and he died after leaving a women's conference discussing the right to vote in the 1800s. So it's like this whole thing is going on. Now it's sort of not even deeper. Let's scrape the sides. And scrape the sides, what we have now entered lynching. Ivy Wells Barnett, fierce. You know, Sojourner Truth is bad. Ivy Wells Barnett, fierce. She's the one who was dragged off the train because she wanted to sit in the ladies' section. And there was this whole issue of being a woman, being a lady, being treated as a woman, as an African American. So they would have a ladies' section of a particular car or, or, or any type of entertainment area for men smoking cigars and you know acting as men do actually. And women would want to have nothing to do with that. And so there would be a separate section for ladies. But black women were not allowed there because white women and white men did not want to see them as feminine, as ladies. There was always this fight. And so Ivy Wells became known from Tennessee having seen her friends lynched because they had a store that had more business than the white store did serving African Americans. And so there was a, an issue in, in Memphis, Tennessee that these men, these black men on the store were lynched. And she saw that lynching was rumored to be involved with the rape of white women. And she said, no, because my parents were lynched because they had a more successful business. So then she began to investigate lynchings. And as she began to investigate these lynchings, and she was a suffragette, a black suffragette, they came for her. They burned down the newspaper school for and she become known because she sat in the ladies' section and they dragged her off the train because it's like, you know, you're not supposed to be in that section. So she had a, a, a reputation already as a fierce challenger of being some social confines. And so now she's writing about lynching with a national voice. They come for her, they burn down the newspaper, they crush the printing press, and she barely escapes from the light and she goes to Chicago. But she always kept in the back of her mind this myth that lynching of black men was due to uh, the rape of white women. So she investigated 4,000, she found, we found over 4,000 people have been lynched, recorded in this country, over 4,000. And she found that very few of them had anything to do with the white women at all. Sometimes it was after World War One, and President Wilson was in office. And who was started as a reformer? He was a reformer for some. He was a negator at the lowest points of racial nation for others. He was the one who showed birth of a nation in the White House, who supported the Ku Klux Klan, who segregated Washington, D.C. And so we have now, in 1919, the Red Summer, where you had more race riots, the attack of black folks for nothing more than wearing a uniform because they served in World War I and were proud to wear their uniforms. 
if she recorded all of this, and she went to the white suffragettes, and she said, wait a minute, you're trying to appease white Southern women to bring them into your cause to gain the right to vote, but you're using this idea, this is where Alice Paul comes in, I'm sorry, Alice Paul was saying, if you give, if you don't give white women the right to vote, then black men have more power over us. If you give us the right to vote, since there are more white women than black women, we'll have power over them and maintain white supremacy. So here's now the issue. Francis Willard, another white suffragette, and the rest of them are saying, without, when I think Willis Barnett brings this to their attention about lynching, here's the data that shows this is not about white women. But it helped white women in the South to continue to believe it, and the white suffragettes allowed them to keep this myth going because it meant that they would then embrace their cause for the vote. Because the, the white women who were in the South, you know, um, the Grimsley sisters and maybe a few others were actually hardcore um, feminists or suffragettes. They were seen as too gentle and clumsy to be involved in protests because protests were something you know, a real woman was not supposed to do, not a lady. So to get them stirred up, they kept saying, we need to have this right to vote to protect ourselves against the black man. Now, I would be well to say, but you know it's not true. I'm showing you it's not true. So you have this rift between Francis Willard and Ida B. Wells Barnett over this issue. And you rarely have white women come forward and say, you know what? Yes, they were raised on lawn by black men and white women, but there were more raised of white women by white men. And this myth has been something that's been carried over and over. And you're talking about messages of another time. That's one of those messages from that time period. And the suffragettes allowed to fester and never recanted that they knew it wasn't the real reason for lynching. But it helped them to gain forces with the Southern women, and they allowed it to continue. I just want to point out we do have some cards um, from some of the chairs. Anyone has any questions? Feel free to write a question down and bring it up, and we'll pass it. So, can we move to the Civil Rights Movement? Let's talk about Mary McLeod Bethune and Dorothy Kyle a little bit later. What role did they play? Well, Mary McLeod Bethune was someone who had access to the White House. It was, it was called the Black Cabinet. She was someone who was unofficially visiting the White House because she was a friend of Eleanor Roosevelt's. And so when they wanted to know what was going on with black people, they would call in Mary McLeod who then started a college in Florida, and now the, the, the school still continues, Bethune-Cookman, in, in Florida. And so um, one thing that's very interesting, though, with the, ninth, the passage of the 19th Amendment, in 1920, you know, of course, that's the 20th anniversary of this year. The assault on black women begins. Because during that time period leading up to it, you see this, organize, this organizing taking place. Black women were organizing even back then. But they were organizing around, the, you know, whether or not they could use the right to vote. They had it because they used it. Let me tell you, here's what happened. The first black U.S. senator Hiram Rebels in 1870. The first black U.S. senator, Hiram 
minorizing black women to register them to vote. And they told him, we haven't had a lynching in this town, and unless you leave, you know, there's going to be one. Just because he was registered, they knew the power of the black female vote even then, because she was already in these, these organizations. And, and I'm just going to, you know, warn you one last thing. One of the reasons why um, these organizations had already existed was because you had people coming up from the South to the North. And these organizations were located, the black women's organizations, were located in the North. So they then become what we know now as the Urban League and these other charitable organizations that were put in place to help the transition of Southern African Americans who are now in the North. So, you know, these women organized, you know, committees, they did charitable, just the same way we do things today. They had the charitable organizations, the churches, they had all these things. Now you add the right to vote. So the framework was already there for the structure for them to go forward using their right to vote to help more services come into their communities. And then the fear was, if you organize the right to vote, then you'll vote out the sheriff who is not protecting your rights. You'll vote out the prosecutor who's not bringing the cases when blacks are assaulted. You'll vote out the government officials who are not taking care of your services in your community. So the fear is that you'll have the political power to gain the types of protections that you need and the constitutional rights you're supposed to have. And they did not want to allow that vote because they knew it would undermine white supremacy. And, and that has been this power struggle ever since. It's this sense of, you know, um, if you have the right to vote, and this is very important, then you control the destiny of your community and the destiny of this country. And the destiny of this country is only supposed to be controlled by certain people. Men first. supposed <laughs> to be controlled by men. And then after that, the social racial hierarchy means that those people, that, you know, the man, the woman, this man's woman, then a man, then that man's woman <laughs> goes down into this food chain. And the sense is we're afraid, afraid of having someone who is not, you know, white, you know, Protestant male making the decisions for this country. And we're still wrestling with that today. So when you're talking about the messages of it, we're still wrestling with this issue of should uh, a woman even be, a white woman even leave this country. I mean, the sense is that only a white man can leave this country. So we had Barack Obama, we'll get to him, I'm sure. I mean, people had a nervous breakdown identity crisis that they're still like probably immediately and scared before. <laughs> because this is like, oh my goodness, this, how can this happen? But it did happen. So let's move toward the feminism in like the yes. 70s and 80s. Yes. So talk about just kind of what happened there. Um, you hear a lot about how feminism is for white women and not for black women. But can you talk about how that was a natural evolution or what was really happening at that time period? Well, many people don't know Pauli Murray. And if you knew Pauli Murray was a co-founder of the National Organization of Women, a black woman, co-founder, but you never hear her name. She was an attorney who um, graduated from Howard. She was a civil rights attorney, as a matter of fact. Um, she went on to be the first um, African-American female Episcopal priest. She did 
your true ally for someone else. You know, I'm not a mascot. So when we're in the room together, we bring experience. When you think about what a feminist is, that's what Sojourner Truth was. So we've been doing this a long time. There are things that can be learned from African American women. We're not at the table just for diversity's sake. We bring quality. We bring intellectual, institutional knowledge. We bring organizational skills. And so people are beginning to see that, but we've been doing it for over 100 years. And I think that the sense is, how are we going to work together going forward? Because it's time for a woman president. And we're going to have to do it. In order for it to get done, we're going to have to do it together. And, do you, and that's why I really wanted to do this forum. Another reason is we had to bring together white, traditionally white organizations and traditionally black organizations because we rarely do that. And unfortunately, just like because of all this history we're talking about right now, we're very segregated in our advocacy organizations. But if we're trying to get, especially in this age, certain candidates elected and elevated, we're going to need to come together at a genuine level. And so I was, my hope is that these types of forums become more common. So you mentioned Barack Obama. So what, with the rise of more blacks in politics, including Barack Obama becoming president, how do you, where do you think we are today, and how do you think we can move forward to what we were just talking about, truly coming together for change? I, I think that one thing we have to embrace is that when we take two steps forward, there will be forces that knock us back a step. And we need to be prepared for that. So that, you know, when we, we're stunned that we have conservative movement, but think about what happened, as you said, after we had 4,000, over 4,000 black men in politics in the 1800s, you don't even know they existed. Think about this. They said after Barack Obama was president, we're going to wipe history clean of him like he was never there. Haven't they almost done this? Think about it. It was like he was never there in two years. That's why you don't know about Hiram Rebels in 1870. You don't know about the 4,000. Because they wiped it clean like he was never there. Like they were never there. And that's how this can keep working the way it does. You know, I, I think it's so important for us to, to see and understand the, the backlash. It's like a, it's almost like a military um, type of mindset that we have to have and understanding when you're going into battle. And that's why I call this book the Voting Rights War. Because it's a war, and we have battles in the war. And when we win a battle, we can't sit down and say, oh, now the war is over. This is ongoing. It will be ongoing. And sometimes you take some, some land, and sometimes you have to pull back. Sometimes you have to retreat, and then you have to strategize. But it's an ongoing mindset that is not going to be uh, we win it and it's done. And I'm going to tell you, they, those people on the other side, who also think what they're doing is important. And that's to understand that they have a sense of destiny as well. And so you have these competing destinies. And you say, well, why can't we all get along? We will in heaven. See, in heaven, everybody will vote. And it won't be long lines. All the shit will work. <laughs> 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 I 
envision to be a community in a country going forward, which goes to the question, what is our vision? We just can't be against something. You have to actually be for something. So what is the vision? The U.S. Census has said by the year 2045, this country is going to be majority people of color. Can you handle that? Are we preparing this one to handle that? We've, we've got to keep these things in mind. Um, because what you're seeing now is the foundation for apartheid. You're seeing the foundation for apartheid so that by 2045, white males will still control this government, still control the country. You're undermining the vote for people of color. You're putting laws in and so-called criminal justice reform. You know, we have a prison industrial complex, which means that if a person has a felony record, they lose their right to vote. They lose their voice. They lose the ability to have a say in the destiny of their community and their country. And this is being set up so that we will have an apartheid system by the year 2045. And unfortunately, too many people of color, too many women, too many won't believe this. You know, and I'm really not a conspiracy uh, theorist, but I do know the U.S. Census has said this, and I do understand that if you were on the other side and you knew this was happening, what would you do? It's, it's quite logical. What would you do if you feared the control of this country in the hand of somebody who didn't look like you, or in the hand of a woman? You know, oh my goodness, a woman. You know, this is, we're, we're, we're having a sense of, of, and I keep using the word destiny, but I also want to use the word power. Because we don't understand our own power. The power to put our destiny in place. Then um, we're missing out on the ability to use a very important weapon in our strategy, which is to go and empower others. But you have to know you have power in the first place in order for you to go empower the rest of the community. So if we're looking for another Barack Obama, if we're looking for um, a, a woman who's going to go forward, it's fantastic that we have, like, what's it, almost 20 candidates for president right now. But I'm hoping that they don't, you know, cross themselves out and we end up with a conservative, you know, because we have so many people who may or may not want to work together and decide who's going to be the strongest candidate to go forward as opposed to, you know, in, in, you know, ending up with people who don't have enough votes to be successful. I want to open this conversation up. And I recently uh, wrote a short blog post called, We Know How You Can Cure White Guilt. And I talked about some of the policy, and the reason why I was asked to write it um, in the way that everything happened with uh, Governor Northam in terms of instead of just talk about racial equity, what can we do, what tangible solutions can we implement to get towards racial equity? So the blog posts talk about policy things like closing the wage gap, pre-K education, investing in health. And I balance it, I do think conversations like this are obviously very important, but there are some tangible things we can do. There was an older man who I worked with on the board who came up to me um, and said, thank you for writing the article, but I do all that stuff. 
I'm always an advocate for black people. He said, I want to know some tangible, tangible things that I can do on a daily, daily basis, not just advocate for policy. So I'd like to open the conversation to you and everyone in the room. What are your thoughts on more things we can do every day? I know there's someone who sits who I know very well, Julie knows her own thing, or Catherine Reed. She always talks about how whenever she sees a panel discussion with all black people, well, I'm sorry, all like white people or all men, she goes up to them afterwards and says, next time you all need to give some diversity to your panel. So she calls out in terms of the representation in those conversations. I'd love to hear from you and everyone else. What are some other things we can do to do that? <laughs> someone and actually go in and actually be able to make a decision and put that person in a position of power and influence is something completely different. And that kind of gets at the tension between, you know, the perception of the black woman in the workforce or the black man in the workforce is aggressive or they're not, you know, professional or what have you. But I think it kind of gets at that. And so I am for white women and black and white men to do that and have that person in Well, I, I want to just mention something. I have to call out a friend of mine this year, and her name is Barbara, and she's here with her husband, Howard, and they're both white. Okay. <laughs> but here's the <laughs> They're going for more than that, though. Okay. But here's the reason why I'm calling them out is because she and I have conversations. We have conversations. Even on the radio. <laughs> we have conversations. And I think that's what's so important as well, is the actual communication. Because I, there's a phrase, I, I'm going to say I hate it out until somebody tells me I'm wrong. And it is the um, privilege of escape. The privilege of escape. Which means that, oh, this is making me uncomfortable. I can walk away. And you don't have to hear anymore my sensitive sensibilities. Can I take this conversation? Men do this a lot. Many of you, if you're married, you know. You know, isn't the privilege of escape the shutdown? I'm not listening anymore. My husband used to pretend like he was asleep. So I would keep talking. You know, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so the privilege of escape, and so then we have to realize as allies, we have to hear each other. We have to better understand. We're not going to understand everything. You know, we're, we're not. There's been too many centuries between us. You know, but we can have commonalities. We can have certain places where we can ask questions. And it's a growing comfort level. We're not going to automatically be there. You know, we don't have to be sisters for life. 
But what we can do is to better understand our situations and to and to understand that the two of us sitting here, if if we had all the history sitting behind us, you would be amazed at what we have to go through. I mean, you as a black woman, what she's had to go through to sit here and look like everything is normal, it is unbelievable. The road we have had to walk. And that's why the four hundreds to me this year is so important. Because I've, I've coined the phrase 400 years of perseverance. From those African women from that ship in August of 1619 to the fact that we're sitting here today, there's a need for our ancestors to just get that attribution. Thank you for living, not cutting your throat, not killing all the children, not jumping off the ship, not hanging yourself on a tree. That we lived in order for us to sit here and have this conversation to share with you today. It is unbelievable. And we don't come here seeking pity. We just want you to know, you know, we look fantastic despite <laughs> 400 years of mess. Um, <laughs> so true. Yes. Yeah. Any other mess? I think that's very important. And even the, the, the way I'm speaking to you right now, I'm speaking to you in my words. This is the way I talk all the time. You know, except when I'm really down, I'm really down in the spirits. Okay? Now, I actually was in a situation, and this is a true story. I was at a, a party in a home, and my husband and I were only black people in the party. And, in the, and the hostess said to me, Why are you so angry? I said, what? what did I, I thought I was having fun. But, you know, <laughs> she said, no, this is the way it sounds. And I said, oh, I know what you want. You want me to sound like this because if I sound like this, <laughs> you know, you will better understand me. And it's not so, I guess, hostile if I say it this way. And I can't talk like this if I had to, but I don't want to. <laughs> Why should I have to? If it's grammatically correct, why must I? And I call that artificial assimilation. Okay, artificial assimilation. That I'm supposed to artificially assimilate, not wear my hair natural. There was a lawsuit that just happened last year because black women wanted to wear their hair natural in the military or on a job. And it was a sense of almost like I'm insulting white women by not wanting to look like them. So when we're talking about implicit bias, sometimes we don't even know, or the microaggressions, you know, that we don't even, the, the idea that the identity is such that you are supposed to revere a white woman as the epitome of beauty. And if you're not speaking, that image, 
that you're insulting her. Because who are you to want to look like an African woman when the American image of beauty? And I did, in my class, I, I teach race and law. And in my race and law class, I asked the first day of class, what is the socio-racial hierarchy? Who's supposed to be at the top? Now, this is New York City. I teach in Manhattan. We have people from all over the world. Some have been there for, in, in the country for a year. Others have been there for 100 years, you know. And they all say a white name. Then I ask, what is the epitome of beauty? And they all say, a blonde, blue-eyed, white woman. Then we look around the room, and there might be one in there, and she might be like, yeah, Thank you. 
Well, I was just going to say to your earlier question, I think part of it is the stories we tell. Because even when we have good statistics and, and laid out information, the magic of stories is they're memorable. So when you tell a story tonight about Sojourner Truth and the fact that she just went five miles away, I was like, you know, there are days that I can actually walk five miles. And, and that's a memorable story, and that sticks with you. And I think of all the many pieces I read, the profiles of politics recently, the one I enjoyed most about was about Stacey Abrams, who's apparently a huge Star Trek fan. <laughs> and, and a Buffy Vampire Slayer fan. And I'm also a Buffy And I think part of that gives you some of that common ground to have. But when stories like that are surprising and unusual, you remember them, and you tell them, and you share them with other people. And I think that's that's part of maybe where we'll make better better common ground going forward. I think so. I mean, one of the things that Barbara and I did, I mean, I was just fascinated with her background in Birmingham. And this is what we have these conversations around, you know, what was it like growing up? It's like a civil rights movement was taking place on this side of town, and you're living on the other side of town. How, how, how did that happen? And even today, all these things are happening, and yet we can still just go to work and come home and, you know, not have it affect our lives. And so I think it's, it's we kind of have to say, I'm going to make an effort to figure out what's going on on the other side of town. I think it's important. I'm a friend of Barbie's and yeah, yeah. that's what I'm here tonight. Here tonight. Um, I think it's really important for white people to also talk with other white people. Like, you know, I, I'm kind of like watching Governor Northam, and I'm like, why are you not talking with the people at BMI and the people in medical? But they're also to be sharing I think of um, the mayor of Bowling, Oklahoma, just went on the black podium. I mean, the businesses were packed, and you know, she and her husband owned a hardware store, but the only business was still open. She shared some stories about what it's like when she's holding an after-school program for the kids who are most out of their community to pass the prisons, which are now being funded by USDA funds, um, and what that does to kids, and you know, what happens. So much more expensive to live um, in, in, in these places, and so how can you do that if you, you don't have transportation, and then you've got to be in prison, and you're sitting in the tiny way, trying to do all the things that you know white people do in, in this community, and then you go to another community and figure out what's like, you know, in terms of the salary, how much you do it, and you don't get to talk about it. But you know, there were real fundamental differences in medicine in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, there's more women. It's, it's 
side of town. So many times you have African Americans who have more than the average white person does, and they have to hide it. They literally have to hide it because of jealousy and envy and this identity that I might not have a whole lot, but at least I'm white. And we need to get over that too. Because that's something that's part of American culture. My whiteness, and I don't call it white privilege, because there are too many whites with no privilege at all, except the pigs. And they ride the pigment train. And their whole sense is that you can be Barack Obama with a law degree from Harvard and all Harvard Law Review and everything else, but you're still black. And that makes you under me unemployed person, you know, watching television all day long and, you know, angry at the world that they don't have more, but don't want to work for more. And what they, the sense that this white was supposed to give them something, but they're, they're cheated out of. There's a lot of white anger out there. There are a lot of, you know, people who are feeling cheated. And when they see a black person who has more than they have, or a Latino, or any person of color, there's an outrage. People were outraged with Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, law degrees, you know, family intact, loving their children. How dare you? And we need to have tough conversations. We need to have those conversations as well. And I think they're, when I saw, I call it urban Appalachian. I saw areas of Philadelphia, white Philadelphia, poor whites, and, and, and you know, we, I was in graduate school, and I went to her house for dinner. This literally happened. They're sitting there. For one, they had a, a, it was a picnic table for a table in a living room. And I went to wash my hands and felt like, you know, if they had stayed dirty, they're cleaner than they would be in their bathroom. But what really got me was the sitting there, which is plastic cloth over the picnic table they have as their kitchen table for dinner. And roaches come flying from everywhere as soon as the food hits the table. And I'm like, what the, where am I? She, white, received a scholarship based on being poor and white. And she told me that's what her personal essay was the fact that she came from this very poor family. And that's why I refer to that area of Philadelphia as urban Appalachian. But I also made the mistake of being there on Sunday. And saw the way they could call every kind of N-word in the world. You know, trying to drive through to get out of there. And it was, you know, there, there are all these things going on at the same time. Everybody's in a silo without having communication, you know, about the poor whites. Because there are so many poor whites. Very poor. And, you know, they feel their interests aren't being heard. Share those things, and, and especially in one conversation, often we do. But we're really 
She decided on her own, I want to find out about the rest of the people in the world. And I think that's very important to find out. And for African American women, too, to find out about the rest of the people in the world. And from their perspective, the other person's perspective, and not putting upon them a particular perspective. I mean, I started to interact more with women from India. Now, find these women from India. And you know, this one woman, when we interacted for a while, and then she got on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because I, I, we were talking about women of color, and she said to me, oh, we're the same color, but we're not the same kind. And I was, yes, and I was like, okay, well, you're the kind that's going to get beat down if you don't look like But the thing that really got me was that, you know, there's this idea of reaching out and trying to bond, and sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. And you just take a shot and you don't hold it personally against the whole race. Because the other thing that nobody's talking about, when a black person commits a crime, it's the whole race. When a white person commits a crime, it's the individual. So when that white man took that gun to the top of that hotel in Las Vegas and slaughtered all those people, that was him. It hit the door to the whole race. And it should have, if we're going to play evenly. It can't be that one person had a mental illness, but this guy over here who does something horrific, who's African American, has something in the genes. It's in the blood. All the people are like that. Oh, Julie had a question. Okay, Julius? Yeah, I like that. My name is Julius. Great presentation. So, um, I'm the father of a 25 year old, 20 year old African American girl, right? So I'm just curious to know, um, there's a lacking of involvement from our, our young ladies uh, into our advocacy groups or whether it's DP or Urban League, you name it. What would, could you give us some tidbits on ways that we can motivate and empower our young girls and teenagers, what they did from the 30s to get involved and be the next Journal of Truth like uh, in the days and years ahead?
I mean, when you think about Martin Luther King died at 39, 39, he said the Montgomery bus boycott in his 20s. So we've got to be able to pass on the information. Reverend Johns was the minister who was in Montgomery at the Baptist Church before Martin Luther King arrived. We always have to have that generational outlook. So that the next one who comes in, each one, each one, reach one, and you don't know who's not necessarily your relative. And that sucks you. Because you want your relative to be, you know, the person who steps in if you step away, but your relative may not have that passion. And it might be something else. This is something that used to happen in the black church way back in the day. And that is, they would see the little girl who had the passion, and they would support her, and it didn't have to be their child. It didn't have to be their, your child. You just saw that and said, I'm going to encourage her to go forward in her studies, and maybe she's good with, you know, being a ballerina, or an acrobat, or biology, or whatever it may be. But there was a support. Now it's so insular that people only want to support their own child. And it needs to be more expanded than that for us to go forward. Because we don't know. Shirley Chisholm became the black um, first black female um, U.S. representative from Brooklyn. Because my mentor, Jocelyn Fawcett Cooper, and her husband brought a lawsuit. She didn't want the job for herself, but she wanted to um, redistrict Brooklyn. It was after that redistricting that led to Shirley Chisholm's rise as a school teacher into politics. So you don't know who's going to catch the fire. You just have to put it out there and see, see what happens. And for young people like your daughters, you know, there might be a mentor for them or a sponsor in this room. I know as an attorney, I, I, I'm a very linear person. 
So things make no logical sense, which something did last week, and I was like, two different women. It's like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, it's emotional. This isn't about logic. I don't discredit because it involves emotion. You know, I just want us to look at it and go, I have a decision to make, you have a decision to make, let's make the issue something in the middle. Let's not make it personal. You know, it's not a personal attack to against or let's just, what are we trying to get to? What's the goal? Where are we going? And sometimes we have to unpack some of those feelings and you know, like uh, Mercury is in retrograde. Anybody following that? Uh, Mercury is in retrograde. Uh, yes, it's following me and messing me up. And I was like, okay, so if we can believe that we can have miscommunications because Mercury is in retrograde, can we have miscommunications because I had a bad day? Or your kid got on your nerves? Or the check didn't come? Or one check bounced? You know, it's like we have to actually look at things and go, I'm not going to take this personally. I might be going through something, but we still need to have the conversation and not carry a grudge. Because one thing gets me, women will carry a grudge for a thousand years. Men can have an argument. What are you, now you're friends again? That was Saturday. How many years be friends again already? Oh, he's a nice guy. <laughs> he's a nice guy. Women forever. I hate you forever. You know what she did. Yeah. <laughs> and I've actually had, you know, you know, and, and I'm secret has to go away. In the black community, you're not supposed to make your husband when it comes to certain things. Not trying to tell the secrets. <laughs> However, there have been too many times when African Americans have, you know, made a misstep. You know, said something that was wrong. And carried a grudge forever and ever on and it's like, well, how do you carry this grudge? But you don't carry a grudge for these people, and they've been best over 400 years. But you can carry a grudge about this over here. How is it? So we have to, as women, learn to get over it, if nothing else, because we have to be allies in a fight that's much bigger than any squabble we have. And I want to talk about other organizations. Do you want to get a question? So I, you know, the one person. 
you know, um, the, the uncertainty of not being able to have a conversation. And it goes back to, let's keep in mind, she loves her mother like I love my mother. So I'd like to close by talking about organizations. I know several of us here, we have the League of Women Voters, Virginia's List, Theta Phi Beta, AKA, a lot of organizations represented, which are, like I mentioned earlier, primarily either black or white. I know we have Sisters United, which is intentionally trying to integrate. I hate to do that word, but that's what we're trying to do. So I want to talk about, you know, maybe, I'm just going to suppose, maybe the League of Women Voters will always be majority white. And maybe that's the way it should be. I'm just saying maybe. Maybe the black sororities will always be that way. And maybe that's the way it should be. But let's think for a second about if we, how we move forward as women on that organizational level, whether it's integrated organizations or working side by side more, because we still don't even work together, even though we're segregated. How can we do that? How can we do that? Especially so it's 2020, and a lot of times I like to say, you know, it's 2020, we're celebrating the centennial of yes, it was primarily white women that were able to vote or that earned, well, they all, we all earned it, but they were able to get the advantage. But it was part of the longer process towards where all women could vote. So, how do we get that organization? What types of things can we do? How can we open ourselves up? I want to just call out Joan, who really the women voters. She intentionally you know, is reaching out to black women's organizations to do voter outreach for this year and next year. That's one great step. That's one thing we can do. Are there any other things we can do? Yes. I wouldn't believe, but I'm a hotel worker. I see that
home for a long time and I know she's got my back. And she's like, and she'll say sometimes, you know, white women are just too whiny. <laughs> I'm whiny all the time. I was like, I don't know, Mary, why? <laughs> um, but one of the things, like, I think a lot of white women are still trying to find this way and trying to make their way and trying to get where they're going. And it's almost like, wow, we're just getting up there. Now you're asking these demands of us, and we're not really in true position of power yet, but I don't want you to get there and start acting like a white man. I don't want a white woman to put on my neck, a white man to put on my neck, a black man to put on my neck, a black woman to put on my neck. I don't want any foot on my neck. And I'm beginning to see when white women get in positions of power, they're acting too much like white men when it comes to power. And their idea of diversity is I've got all different types of white women in this room. So that goes back to why they're not thinking about us, because their idea of diversity is diverse white women. Because their, their sense of diversity that I see, and I've, and I've heard them say it, it's like a bunch of diverse women. I'm like, I'm looking like, where, where is it? <laughs> where is it? But in their minds, it was diverse. And it is scary to finally get your foot on the handle of power and have other people start making demands. But power, you know, requires that you consider other people once you get in those positions. And one last time. Not just ethnicity, but also perspective. Because just because you are from a particular ethnicity or gender doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to think a certain way or hold a certain property um, position. And um, I've had this experience when I was in college, full of compliance majors, running at the 2000 election, and some writing interns at the White House Project, which is all about um, fostering youth leadership. And
back at our refreshments. So please enjoy and thank you all for coming tonight. And if I could, I want to leave you women with this power that you have. For those to whom much is given, much is expected, you've got the power. Go out, make it happen, go forth and conquer. Okay. And it's like you really need to meet because who said that? Joan. 